Put down your pens, put down your pencil, step away from the keyboards, and settle in for this week's episode of Writer's Block. First and foremost, allow me to thank Low Tide Kava Bar for the kava that I am drinking on today's episode, as well as let me thank uh, Muddied Waters Media for allowing me to do the show, which makes sense because it's my company. Also, I'd like to thank Don and Sally Wright for giving birth to me. Even though I know you don't watch this show... I feel as though you do appreciate that, at least. Um, today, I have a very special guest on, uh, the Executive Director for U.S. Term Limits, Mr. Nick Tumbalides. Nick, thank you for coming on today, buddy. Matt, it is an honor to be on with you. Yeah. How's everything going? Uh, you're, you're, on the, you're on the east coast there of Florida. That's right. Yeah. I am in uh, Melbourne, Florida, just south of uh, Cape Canaveral, where they launch all, all those uh, government-sponsored rockets <laughs> that you see. Uh, Elon Musk is also building rockets here, by the way, and landing them back down on a platform, yeah. uh, which is pretty darn cool to watch. Uh, you know, we're chilling out. We, we're in a sleepy little beach area around here. We love it. You know, it might not be where all the action is in Florida. But it's a pretty darn cool place to live. Yeah, like like I was saying before the show, I've been to Melbourne a couple of times. I really like it over there. It is just, it's a small town. It's like a small, like a small suburban town on a beach, and it's just a great place to go hang out. Great day trip or even like a long weekend kind of thing. Always had a good time over there. Absolutely, yeah. we just, we become Snowbird Central uh, at certain times of year. But apart from that, we're doing we're loving it. So. Yeah, I was I was going to say starting uh, pretty soon here, we're going to oh, yeah. get the influx of snowbirds coming down. I, I'm ready to barricade my doors. Right, and, and I'm 
I am ready to get stuck in traffic. Oh yeah. I was going to say, stay off the roads. Cause it's going to be 45 minutes longer to get anywhere you want to go. Exactly. Pretty much right around Thanksgiving. Um, <laughs> Um, so you are the executive. So first of all, you went to the university of Connecticut. I did. Yes. And you got a degree in economics. Clearly you have been talking to the NSA. Yes, That is is what happened. Yeah. Uh, I did get a degree in economics. Um, and I would advise people, uh, as in terms of college, don't go. It's a scam. Yes. (laughs) I would, I would actually agree with that statement a hundred percent. I believe my, um, when I go on to pay my student loans, they give you the image to make sure it's you. And uh, my image is entitled, uh, college was a waste of money. That's what mine says. On <laughs> Facebook, it says, college, scam, don't go. Yeah. Like, unless you need that piece of paper to become a lawyer or a doctor or something like that. I mean, I think you could do a better job at the local library. Right. Um, That's but yeah. <laughs> Basically, I had fun at college, but most of it was just rabble-rousing you know, against the student government, right. uh, working on different causes, um, trying to fight for more freedom of speech, more academic freedom there. So it wasn't just controlled by one ideology. I had fun there. Um, but, um, you know, in terms of getting the piece of paper, it hasn't really been a deciding factor for me. Now the, the, the piece of paper that I got, uh, has not helped me even a little bit. It is a very expensive thing on my bookshelf. Correct. Right. And that's all it is. Like, I didn't actually need to go to college to open this podcasting station. Oddly enough, I just had to read. Yeah, 90% of my classmates probably didn't belong there either, but uh, that's okay. They got their piece of paper. They feel good about it. Exactly. It made my parents proud. So, you know, at least they've got that. Mm -hmm. So, and then, uh, so did you grow up in Connecticut or did you grow up here? I did. No, I grew up in the heart of darkness in Connecticut. I'm very Um, sorry. Very sorry. I I spent the first 22 years of my life there, and then I moved down to Florida in 2012. Okay. Actually, and the reason why is frankly, people in Connecticut could not—you couldn't find a job if you're just out of college in Connecticut. It was very, very difficult. Government was taxing and regulating businesses out of the state. GE actually recently just moved from where I grew up in Connecticut over to Massachusetts. So you know, if if Massachusetts is seen as like a tax shelter or refuge, how bad could Connecticut possibly the the famous tax haven of Massachusetts? (laughs) Companies leaving states to go to Massachusetts. I know, right? And it's really cool though because um, there has been such population exodus out of Connecticut and into Florida that my alma mater now has reunions in Florida. So I get I get emails from UConn saying, hey, there's going to be a reunion in Orlando with UConn alumni because so many of them have moved down here, including a lot of my best friends. So, you know, I still get to keep in touch with people without having to go back to my home state. It's oh, pretty that's, neat. Yeah, that's beautiful. Right. Like I grew up in a, I grew up in Virginia and I started school at a George Mason University to study economics. Um, and then I discovered really fun things that people call drugs. And uh, so... <laughs> No comment. So my uh, college career did not last. My first college career did not last as long as some would. Um, And then I went back later and I finished uh, the last couple of credits I needed online. So my my degree isn't from George Mason. It's from this online school. But I'm like, well, a portion of my credits came from George Mason. So I'm just saying that's sure. That's where you got it. Want it. Right. (laughs) 
yeah, I wanted to go and uh, learn under Walter Williams, and uh, I did not make it that far in the program. Oh. No, I, I had to end a little early on that one because they don't like it when you go through withdrawals in your morning classes. <laughs> I don't really get it. Uh, At least you showed up for class. Exactly. Right. You know, those classes that they actually counted my attendance, I had to be at. <laughs> Um, so you, uh, started out, so you started out with U S term limits back in right around 2012 ish, right? Two, 2013. 2013. Actually. Yeah. I came on board. Okay. Um, I had been an activist before for other causes, a lot of, you know, Liberty oriented stuff. Um, but what I realized is, and I was trying to elect candidates, right? I worked for different campaigns. I volunteered on a lot of campaigns up both in Connecticut and here. And what I soon realized is, that running for office and trying to help people run for office, it's a lot like changing the captain of the ship over and over and over again. Uh, you're really just electing a new captain of the Titanic, but right. you're still headed towards an iceberg. And what I realized is you can't, it's not enough to just change your politicians. You actually have to change the structure of government. If you ever want to get anything done, you need to get elected officials in there who are actually going to be accountable to the voters instead of their own self-interest. Um, and so I took to term limits like a fish to water. I'd always been supportive of it. I didn't know there was a, a single issue organization out there fighting for this full time, has been fighting for it full time with a track record uh, for a couple decades. So I became the Florida director of U.S. term limits, and then I worked my way up to executive director. And that's the position I'm in now. Our big project is term limits for Congress, getting a constitutional amendment to finally do that. Right. And I know that um, at the time of recording, we have no idea who won this race, just so everybody knows before. Like, immediately I was like, let's not talk about the election since we don't know who's going to win. But immediately I'm like, oh, well, if I'm going to talk about Rick Scott, I kind of have to say. (laughs) So Rick Scott, who not the most popular person in Florida. But apparently he's just slightly more popular than Bill Nelson. Um, so far, anyway. Um, by about 15,000 votes. Right, by about 15,000 votes. Um, so he made his main campaign platform term limits. Right. right. And this is that was the first time I remember hearing somebody running for Senate, especially, uh, possibly Congress, but there's so many that are out there. I'm not, I can't speak to that, but for Senate... I think he might be the first person that made that a key platform of his. It's happened before, but he was definitely the first one to do it in the 2018 cycle. Right. And, you know, it really was a no brainer. I think when you look at his opponent, Bill Nelson, the guy was first elected in 1972. He was actually the state rep from this district that I'm sitting in right now at first, you know, back then, um, you had Disco and Bell Bottoms. Nixon was president Nixon, when Bill Nelson yeah. was first elected. Since 1972, he has been elected 15 more times to five different positions. He's been in office 46 years. Oh, I was okay. I was thinking it was 43. No, it's 46 if you combine what he did at the state level plus federal. Okay. Um, and he's been a senator now for three terms. Right. If he gets this additional term, he will cross into 50 years total in elected office, uh, which just makes you the absolute poster child for term limits. Right. I mean, Bill Nelson has been the king of pork and special deals. He has not been a very effective senator. 
actually at best he's been ineffective at worst he's just been awful um there's a lot of things people don't know about him like we think when i was a kid growing up i used to think bill nelson was this cool astronaut guy who then went into politics like like john glenn people liked him so much a lot of people feel that way about him still today well, I would like to blast him back into space if right. that's an option and just leave him out there. Um, let him orbit the Earth a couple uh, thousand times. But yeah, we people thought he was this astronaut guy who got into politics. They didn't realize he just happened to be a politician who was bringing home the bacon for NASA. And so he got to go up in the shuttle right. as kind of a special kickback. Yep. You know, his whole biography is really not that impressive. And I think Rick Scott seized upon that. He said, Look, I'm the business guy. I've brought jobs back to Florida. This dude has just been squatting in political office for 46 years. What has he done for you? It's time to term limit him out of office. And I, I thought it was really a brilliant campaign strategy to make that the centerpiece. Yeah. And uh, that's as soon as I found out, because when Rick Scott was running for governor, he was like a robot on jobs. It did not matter what the question was. It just rolled back to jobs every single time. And then he started doing that with term limits. And I was, I remember watching uh, an interview with him and they're asking him all these questions about all this stuff going on. And he, well, I really think the best way to handle it would be for term limits to be in Congress. So that way, and I was just like, all right, like. He's amazing at staying on message. He is so good at staying on message. You gotta give him credit for that. It would have been, the question could have been completely off the wall for anything else and then it was just nope term limits she asked how your dinner was man (laughs) (laughs) and we loved it because we got basically free advertising out of it he spent millions of dollars on those ads and he was just bringing term limits back to the forefront getting people talking about it generating buzz in favor um i think it was actually him talking about term limits that let us um put a constitutional amendment on the ballot this year in florida for school board term limits, it was Amendment 8. Now, granted, it was thrown off the ballot by the state Supreme Court. It will probably come back, but it was Rick Scott's um, push and momentum, I think, that allowed us to qualify that for the ballot in the first place. Right. So, Yeah, I knew that, I knew that the term limits had been taken off. I knew that one was Amendment 8. That was one of the few that I was watching from beginning to end. Um, and here in Florida, apparently, if it's an amendment, we're voting yes. It doesn't matter what that amendment's for. We're just going to vote yes. Because I, I heard someone say on Twitter, it was like, if Florida had an election between like getting free ice cream and getting kicked in the face, like those two options would be within like one-tenth of a percentage right. point. It'd be 50, 50.2% to 49.8 yeah. or something. Yeah, we, we just love our close elections here in Florida, and we do love our, our amendments. But it's amazing that of all the crazy amendments that were on the ballot, like banning vaping and offshore drilling in one amendment. In one amendment. This ridiculous like casino thing that basically set up a monopoly for the Seminoles. Of all that deceptive crap that was on the ballot, the one thing the court found a problem with was term limits right. and, and school choice. It's like they just overlooked everything else and they said, oh, we've got to kick term limits off the ballot because they're basically in the pockets of the local politicians. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and so with term limits, I actually see both sides of this argument. So I'm very excited to have you on. That's it. I'm out of here. No. <laughs> I only like one-sided echo chambers. Right. So I'm done. This interview is over. So the big, the biggest one, the biggest issue that I have with term limits, which 
I, I think that because you're pretty you're pretty much a libertarian, right? Like you're libertarian leaning, conservative, conservatarian I'm, somewhere I'm, in there. I'm a philosophical libertarian who thinks the best way to advance that is probably within the Republican Party. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you believe in the people having you know their voices and their power and that kind of thing. Why is it that putting term limits in would would not restrict the voters' choice if they want to have their person in office longer? It's a good question. I think first you have to look at um, the difference between government and a free market, right? So if you and uh, Rick Scott and I walked into Publix and you and Rick wanted a Coke and I wanted a Sprite, that's what we would get. That's a free market. Right. That's not what government is. That's not what elections are. Elections are just one more government program that is really designed to benefit the powerful and it allows for uh, sometimes tyranny of the majority. If you and Rick Scott voted for Rick Scott and I voted for another candidate, then Rick Scott becomes my senator. We all have to live with Rick Scott. Uh, it would be like if we all had to drink Coke because that's what you two wanted. So it's majority rule. Um, elections actually allow people to impose their will on others by just simply getting 50% plus one or by getting a plurality. So you have to remember, elections are not a free market, a total free market in terms of choice. But you also have to look at this. Do you really think that the role of a citizen in our republic is just to choose between two politicians who are pretty much pushing the same pap? Or do we also get to choose the parameters of our government? So, for instance, term limits is supported by over 80 percent of Americans. It's got 82 percent support. Term limits is more popular than any politician in Congress. Don't we also have the right to choose to have term limits on our elected officials if we want to? If we want to make an elected official ineligible to serve for office, can't we implement that and impose our will on them? Um, what you also see is, as far as elections go, this country is plagued by uncompetitive elections, meaning you look at Congress about uh, 10% of all the elections for Congress, it's just one incumbent running unopposed. Right. So voters in those districts, they have no choice, no choice whatsoever. And then another about 80% of elections for Congress um, feature an incumbent running against a candidate who's not really raised any money, just kind of a gadfly, um, maybe put open a bank account, put a couple grand in, is not really running a fair campaign or a real campaign. So those elections aren't meaningful either. Of the 535 um, elections that we have, you know, every two years plus the staggered Senate terms, under 10% of those are actually competitive, contested elections where voters can cast meaningful choices. Um, So where do you see competition? Where do voters actually get choice? They get choice in open seat races. When, When a seat is open, you see diverse array of candidates who run for it. Voters get, you know, five, 10 options sometimes to choose from. If you want to run for that office, it doesn't take as much money to do it. The barriers to entry are lower. And voters actually get more choices when seats are open. If you had term limits, the seats would be open every eight years or every six or eight years on a regular interval. And voters would have more choices than ever before. So if you're doing term limits, you're actually empowering the voters um, to have more choices. I don't know about you, but I don't want my elections to look like a Soviet grocery store where there's just one option to choose from. 
I would prefer, you know, as the consumer, um, as the voter, to have a wide array of options when I go into the ballot box. And that's what term limits can accomplish for you. Okay. So like the Bernie Sanders uh, 2016 quote, where I'm going to paraphrase this, but he said uh, part of the- Free, pro- free stuff. Free stuff. We got free stuff. <laughs> that's we it. need free stuff, stuff for everybody. Um, no, he said- um, Part of the problem that we have is that there are too many choices, which gives everybody stress. Uh, so when you go into a grocery store and you see 142 different types of uh, deodorant, you don't know which one to pick, which causes more stress in your life. So we need less pick. So you're going like anti Bernie Sanders, which makes sense. But uh, <laughs> well, I think choice and competition is good. You know, uh, yeah. I believe in, I believe in capitalism. I believe in the free market. I want people to vote with their feet. Um, and I want people to choose the best representative for them. If there's only one person on the ballot or maybe two people are pretty much alike because they're both career politicians, you're not really getting a a real choice as a voter. Um, and it disenfranchises people. And it also keeps, you know, non-traditional candidates and, you know, third parties from ever getting a fair shake because these elections are basically dominated by the incumbent monopoly and the, the, um, established parties. So for... Basically, basically, since I started paying attention to politics in like eighth grade, we'll say, personally, I've always thought that the uh, that the House term of two years is too short because you spend six months actually doing legislative work and then you spend the next year and a half campaigning right. again. Right. Um, and that, as far as term limits go, like if you got to spend that kind of time campaigning in order to get reelected, wouldn't it be better to do longer terms or do you still think the two two-year term is okay. I'm a little torn on that um, because I can see that the wisdom in both sides. On one hand, you don't want people to be in constant campaign mode. Um, But on the other, if you've got a really bad politician who's elected, you want the chance to remove them from office as soon as possible. Like the woman from New York. Yeah. No, she's a great example. Um, So I see that both ways. I don't think it really affects term limits all that much. But if you look at the way the founders set it up, they wanted the House to be a lot more democratic, more rough and tumble, closer to the people. They set that two-year term specifically so there'd be more turnover and more people would get a chance to serve. Um, Whereas the Senate, you know, modeled after the House of Lords, very different situation. You get six years. Um, So I'm I'm pretty much okay, I think, with the two-year House term. Uh, if you had a limit, maybe you would get more people who weren't so focused on building their little empires and more likely to tackle huge problems like the national debt, for example. Right. The, re- the reason no one ever tackles the national debt is because they're they're cowards, right? They just they're too afraid of losing their seats and they don't have the balls to actually vote to cut spending. Um, but if they knew that they weren't in Washington to build an empire, they only got six years to do the right thing or get the hell out of there. I think they'd be more inclined to actually propose some, some courageous ideas, you know? Right. Um, so back when, man, I don't remember the guy's name that was in office. Whoever might. He's, he's probably still in office. No, he no, he, he passed away. So I know oh. he's not because we had the special election between David Jolly, Alex Sink and Lucas Overby. Um, mm. And I can't remember the guy's name before that anymore. Bill, Bill Young. Bill Young. Bill yeah, yeah. Bill Young. Um but yeah, when Bill Young passed away and they did the special election, in that special election, they spent 
I believe between the two main parties, because obviously the Libertarian didn't spend that much. Um, between the two main parties, I think it was upwards of like $50 million on that special election seat. It was very close though, right? It, it was, was ve- it was very close. A lot of people are totally against all spending and money in politics. They say, well, big money in politics is not good. I think if you've got both sides offering two different philosophies and both of them are very well funded, then money in a race can be good because it means both are getting their message out there and voters have a real choice. What I don't like is when the ratio gets out of control. And that's what you see with incumbents all the time. An incumbent can raise $7 from corporate PACs, special interest PACs for every $1 that a challenger can get from those guys, which means the deck is totally stacked. You know, we can say in principle, well, why don't you just vote them out? Because you need $2.5 million on average to throw an incumbent out of office, and nobody has that. And so most people who would think about maybe challenging someone like Bill Young, they don't even run. They just stay in the private sector until and, he and, yeah, gets until, indicted right. or retires or passes away, unfortunately. Um, so if you had term limits, I think you'd be attracting a lot more people to the process, people that wouldn't typically have gotten involved. And But don't you think that with term limits, you're going to see a lot of the overblown spending on campaigns like we did in that race or like uh, 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 Bobby O'Rourke um, out in Texas raising $70 million and refusing to share it with anybody, um, which apparently they got mad about. I'm like, he raised it. Like, that's kind of Is his. it Bobby or Beto, Beto or Robert? Or Robert, or... yeah. I like Bobby. He seems like a Bobby, skateboarding Bobby. Um, yeah. But that that's actually one of my main concerns is just the inflated amount that we've been seeing spent on uh, on elections. Like, I believe if you counted up all of the money spent on the midterm, it was $55 billion during this past midterm. Now, if people were getting termed out and you didn't have the uh, the incumbents that had been there for so long that it was like the the opponents didn't even try to raise money because there was no point. Like, that number would then balloon even higher. Like we'd be looking at seventy-five billion, maybe even a hundred billion, just for a for for a midterm election, and wouldn't that then kind of show that uh, term limits could just end up costing people more money and more more flyers going to everybody's house, which we all hate. We do all hate that, but if more money is a sign of more competition and the voters actually having choices then I don't think that we should object to it. Uh, You have a lot of congressmen who have $5 million just sitting in their pack. And what they do with it, they they may not spend it. They just keep it there as a deterrent, right? They just keep it there as like a wall that keeps other people from running against them. Um, And that's, that's not healthy for us at all. So if we have more spending, but it means we get more meaningful elections where voters have real choices that I don't really, I don't really have a much of a problem with that. Um, But what what you will see is the the average cost of winning a house seat drops considerably when that house seat is open. So you might see more candidates and all of them have raised a decent amount of money and maybe more money will be spent in that election overall. But for an individual who wants to run for office, you no longer need 2.5 million when the seats open. You can win it with half a million. You can win it with 600,000. And I think that opens up the process more to people who come from outside the political system, 
who wouldn't otherwise have a chance to win those seats. And that's good. That's good for us because we don't want a legislature just filled with lawyers and lobbyists and lifelong politicians who've just been ladder climbing from the city council to the county commission, to the state house, to Congress. I mean, that's really corrosive on our system because those people just believe government is the answer to every single problem. Right. Uh, so I, I want to see different perspectives, fresh ideas, fresh faces in political office. And you do more of that if you lower the barriers to entry, let more people run. Okay. And in all fairness, like Charlie, Charlie Crist, our former governor, somewhat of a ladder climber, but I don't think that he thinks government's the answer to everything. I think he's the government's the answer to my pension, his, pen, <laughs> his pension, not my pension, but to his pension, because he's just like triple dipping at this point. Oh yeah. He's trying to get his uh, hand in uh, as many different tills as he can. Yeah. Amazing. Doing a great job at it. Um, switching parties and everything just to get to He'll, he'll be whatever you want him to be. He will, he, will, he will just pull out the talking points for any party that wants to have him elected. Um, so, when it com- so when it comes to term limits, you've got the possibility. And I'm not saying that this would actually happen. But with, especially in the House, like what kind of terms would we be looking at? So we have an amendment uh, introduced in the House. It was introduced by Ron DeSantis this session. Uh, When he stepped down from Congress, it kind of became a headless horseman without a sponsor. But it calls for a three-term limit in the House, six years, and a two-term limit in the Senate. Um, We think that very closely approximates um, the most time-tested limit that you can have, which is eight years. Obviously, you can't do eight years in the Senate because it's a six-year term. Right. You can do 12 there. You can go a little bit shorter in the House. If somebody serves six years in the House and then 12 years in the Senate, no one is going to say that is not a career. Um, you should be absolutely done um, at that point. And we think that would create a balance between getting fresh ideas in office while not allowing people to become stale and complacent and corrupt. So six in the House, six in the 12, House. 12 in the Senate. 12 in the Senate. So one of the things, one of the, um, one of the arguments against term limits that I've been reading about over the last week while I've been prepping for this um, is that, uh, is that they, uh, people say that if we throw in term limits, it would lessen the desire of our politicians to actually learn how to legislate properly. Because, <laughs> right, that's actually one. So I'm throwing it out to you. Are they, are they legislating properly now? They aren't. No, I'll give you that. We have a $20 trillion, well, higher, $21 trillion national debt. We have the longest war in American history. We have complete dysfunction. Uh, we can't even nominate our judges without it turning into like a circus with monkeys flinging feces at each other. I mean, nobody would look at what we you have. Be, you got to be careful right with the monkey term. Uh, oh, we're oh in my. Florida. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> so sorry. I, I was actually referring to Patrick Leahy. Uh, <laughs> feces. Just but fling, yeah, flinging the poo. Mark, Mark Zuckerberg comes into Capitol Hill and he's talking to Bill Nelson. Bill Nelson doesn't look like he knows how to turn on a computer. And then we expect him to regulate Facebook. So the system we have right now is a complete disaster. Do not be told or by any politician that they they know how to manage this because the results have just been awful. Um, But meanwhile, if you look at the states that have term limits like Florida, um, they are on average very well run. Florida is the number one state in the country for fiscal health. On average, if a state, there are 15 states with term limits on the legislatures. 
on average, if a state has term limits on the legislature, it's going to be stronger in terms of fiscal health than its peers. The worst states in the country are the ones with the most career politicians, like Illinois, with $200 billion in debt. You will not find a term limit anywhere uh, in the land of Lincoln. It just does not exist. State is entirely run by crackpot career politicians. They've run it into the ground. They have the lowest bond rating in the history of any state. Yeah, and I mean, I would say Illinois is not only run by crackpot politicians, but also by um, unions um, that own those career crackpot politicians. Correct. Um, And while I do see that, like, everybody knows, everybody that watches this knows, I'm going to preface that because I do think that the people who watch our shows are uh, of higher intelligence. Um, <laughs> nice pandering to your audience there, thanks. Matt. Um, but I'm pretty certain that everybody knows that uh, with the with the FDA, who I hate immensely, um, with the FDA, they use it as a springboard in order to get into lobbying work. Um, mm-hmm. And so while they're working with the FDA for five, five, uh, five digits a year, as opposed to six digits a year. Um, they may do things for these lobbying firms in order to get the lobbying job afterwards, um, where they will get paid the six figures a year. Now with term limits, do you think that with people, I know that lobbyists will be able to get to congressmen and senators, uh, and use them as, what they need in order to get what they want passed. Anybody that's seen the new, newest season of uh, House of Cards knows kind of what I'm talking about. Um, but so having the bigger turnover, wouldn't that mean that lobbying groups would be trying to get more people in Congress, but at younger, like before they even get in, like when they're still in the state houses and when they're still in the and then just try to use them as they go on. One of the um, most oft cited objections to term limits is that it would empower the lobbyists. We hear this everywhere we go. And I will tell you that is fake news. Okay. (laughs) That is utter and complete bullshit. I am still waiting on the first lobbyist but one, just one, to march into my office, knock on the door, and say, Nick, we would love to help you put term limits on Congress. It never happens. And in fact, in every single campaign we've run over the years, which is like 500-plus campaigns, the lobbyists and their clients are always on whichever side wants to prevent, weaken, or abolish the term limits because lobbyists love building and keeping relationships with politicians. And what term limits do is they disrupt those relationships. Term limits knocks the gravy train off the track and forces lobbyists to work harder to build relationships with new people. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with Jack Abramoff, who went to prison for you know very corrupt scheme um, involving kickbacks. And Abramoff, uh, since, since he got out of prison, he's written a book about how you could fix Congress, kind of a mea culpa type thing. He has said that lobbyists despise term limits because a politician who stays in office for life and is a friend is worth his weight in gold to them. So no, I do not think lobbyists would hate it if you were to pass term limits on Congress. It would be the bane of their existence. And you would also 
put a jam in the revolving door. Because right now, when people leave Capitol Hill, whether you're staffer, senator, congressman, what you're taking to K Street is your Rolodex. You don't have any special skills, right? I mean, the reason we, we see the sons and daughters and nephews of congressmen as lobbyists, not because they know anything about transportation or oil or banking, it's because they have the relationships. It's because, yeah, it's because daddy or mommy knew somebody. Exactly. But what happens if that congressman is forced to retire? That relationship is eliminated. They no longer have sway over the newer Congress members. And there's even been a study on this that showed when a staffer becomes a lobbyist and then their former boss from Congress retires, their income as a lobbyist actually drops by a significant percentage. So if you were to have more turnover, kick more people out on a regular basis, pink slip them, you would see um, you would really put a jam in the revolving door and you would stop a lot of that kind of um, patronage and corruption. All right. Um, so in Congress, we, you, you've got the Nancy Pelosi's who's been in office. I want to say 35 years. I was going to say sounds about right. I was going to say longer than I can remember. So yeah. it's, it's been a while. Bernie Sanders, who's never held a real job in his life. Um, he's only been elected to office, I believe. Which I don't know how that started, but somehow he did it. Uh, he became the mayor of Burlington and just kind of went from there. I think he, wasn't he like a failed electrician at some point? Something like that. Like he completely failed in the private sector because he was paying everybody the same. I don't know. Um, I'm not sure why. Uh, because he just expected money to show up in his pocket when without working. I don't know. Um, so. So you got Bernie Sanders, you got uh, Bill Nelson, like we talked about, 40, 46 years, you were saying? 46. 46. So 46 years. Uh, even with the um, Harry Reid's been in there forever, uh, Mitch McConnell's been in there forever, uh, tons of career politicians everywhere. Um, with the cycle of new, new people constantly coming in, you are going to definitely run the risk of getting rid of the few good legislators that are there. You're going to get rid of such as, such as who? Uh, Justin Amash, Thomas Massey. Okay. That's true. Right. Like you got two or three, like literally, like I'll give Mike Lee, Rand Paul, outside That's of that. Objection. What's that? That's a good objection. Do those guys um, enjoy being on the losing end of uh, 432 to three votes? No, <laughs> I, I would imagine not. Well, when you talk to those guys, it's interesting. Um, Rand Paul is one of the leading voices in the Senate for term limits. Thomas Massey is for term limits. I think Justin Amash is too. He may not be on our bill, but he, I think he is on an A term limits bill or he thinks there should be some form of some term form. limits on Congress. So if you talk to those guys, they would tell you, they would prefer a legislature um, that is not dominated by careerism and seniority. They would prefer changing Congress permanently for the better to them being a very vocal yet very tiny minority of people who actually have their heads screwed on right. Right. So I know that when the founding fathers kind of started this experiment, um, the idea was – there was no such thing as a career politician. You, you know, you farmed your fields, you worked in your home state, your hometown. And then when it 
felt necessary, like when it felt necessary within you, that's when you went off and you ran for office. And if you got elected, you were serving your nation that way. And then after you were done, you went back home and continued farming the farming, tilling the farm or, you know, practicing law or whatever. And instead, instead, what ended up happening was people just constantly running year after year after year because the job security is actually quite great. Um, Not a lot of turnover in uh, Congress. Hardly any, hardly any. Um, You know, right now we hear people say we have term limits. They're called elections. Um, Not really, because 98 percent of incumbents get reelected. 98% running for their own seat, even in a so-called wave election like this year, I think 93% of incumbents in the house still got reelected. 83% in the Senate got reelected. We think it's a wave. We think things are really changing, Um, but then nothing ever really does. It's just like a football game and the possession has changed to the other team, but it's still the same players on the field and there's still not a lot going on in terms of making progress. So, um, you're right. We, we need something to kind of spur that turnover. And a term limit is really the only way to guarantee you're going to have that rotation in office on a regular basis. For the, most of our country's history, we didn't have to have term limits on Congress because House member only served about two or four years on average. It was actually hard to get good people to run back then. Now it's hard to get them out of office. Hard to get them to leave. It's like pulling a sword from a stone to remove a Bill Nelson from the Senate. That's good. It's still hard to get good people in. Yeah. Only the bad people run. It's, it's, especially here in Florida. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> well, only in Broward County, I think. That's, well, That's more of a Broward phenomenon. We're doing okay in the rest of Florida. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to say, like, if you, if you look at a map of Florida voting, uh, the Broward County is blue. My area is blue and Orlando is blue. <laughs> Everything else is red. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, we went from Bill Young to David Jolly, who lost immediately to uh, Christ. When, he also when, lost his dignity, right? Oh, David yeah. That's if he ever had it. Um, he was kind of like a mini. Yeah, you're right. You can't lose what you never had. Right. He was kind of like a mini Charlie Christ in the sense that he just kind of flip flopped all over just the map. Whatever, you know. I'm I'm a lobbyist. Now I work for Bill Young. Now I'm running. Like, mm, that seems like a conflict of interest somewhere or somewhere along that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I totally forgot my question on that. Oh, <laughs> on sorry. That no, you're fine. I started going off on that rant and just decided to make fun of David Jolly for two minutes, um, which is always a good time. <laughs> Use car salesman pieces. Uh, I did not like that guy. I can tell. Yeah. I can tell. He was not a fan of term limits either. By no. the way, he always refused to sign our pledge. Yeah, that's not surprising uh, even a little bit. No surprise. If you read that, there's a book by a great book about how Congress works called uh, Extortion by Peter Schweizer, who's an awesome researcher, guy's based in Florida. And he's, he actually mentions David Jolly in that book as a staffer slash lobbyist who was right in the middle of so many of these corrupt extortion deals that members of Congress were making, uh, particularly out of Bill Young's office. David Jolly is somebody who really exploited the revolving door, went to K street and became a, a hardcore lobbyist. Yeah. So. Yeah. He, uh, he went, yeah, I think he was a staffer lobbyist back to staffer and then ran when Bill Young passed away. And I think the only reason he joined back on as a staff was so he could say he wasn't a lobbyist when he was running. 
<laughs> I really, I like, I really think that. It's amazing how many legislators we have here in Florida and really elsewhere who, who list as their profession, like lobbyist or government consultant or government relations. I'm just like, have you no shame? Are you just going to be that obvious about it? <laughs> At least pretend to have a real job, right? Just, just say you're a car salesman. I know. It gives you more respect than lobbyist. We've, we've done polling, um, I think, in conjunction with Rasmussen. And we have found that uh, used car salesmen are actually more popular than members of Congress. Head lice are more popular than members of Congress. Root canals are more popular. And finally, uh, last but not least, Nickelback is more popular than the U.S. Congress. That's, so, that's embarrassing right there. not doing that well. No. Um, <laughs> that's just really bad. So, yeah, I mean, like I know that Congress's approval ratings typically right around 8 ish um i know i know it's real it, low. it's a little bit higher after an election um, right. especially when a new party takes over it, it jumps to about like 15 percent, and then within six months people are like oh wait these people suck too never mind never right. mind we're back to eight we're back to eight yeah and i know that if uh any job i've ever had where i wasn't like the owner of the company uh any job i've ever had if my approval rating was eight by everybody in charge um, I know that I would not have had that job much right. longer. And I do know that Congress just seems to continue to keep it. And with, with the ever-testing, the ever-tested argument of we're right in the middle of all the things I promised. If you take me out, I don't get, like, we can't, we will not achieve what I've promised uh, if you take we, me out we, of office. We, if you do not reelect me, we will not solve the problems that I have created. Right. <laughs> it's very important. I have assembled red tape here, and now I will help you cut through it. But you're right. And what, what if you were to go to your boss in the private sector and say, I've been here six years. I've been here eight years. I still don't know how to do this job. I still haven't learned how to do this job. It, that would not fly. And yet that is the main argument that politicians use against term limits. If you work for a, a company and you don't learn your job within eight days, you will be out on your ass with a pink slip, much less eight years. So it's just you know a ridiculous argument that people cannot learn how to be politicians. It's not that difficult. When you're a politician, you get to spend other people's money. Most of us only get to spend our own. I mean, it's not that hard to do right. when you really think about it. And what I've seen is the guys who have been in there for the shortest amount of time seem to know the system better than the 40, 50-year career politicians because – um, you know, they've spent more time more recently in the private sector. Many of them are business owners, have worked in the real economy for a while, or they're doctors who actually understand our healthcare system as opposed to career politicians. Whereas, you know, 40, 50 year members of Congress, um, some of them uh, are, they can't find the bathrooms anymore. I mean, we have Alzheimer's drugs that are getting delivered to Capitol Hill on a daily basis from a pharmacy in Washington, D.C. And you know, these are, people who are deciding the some of the biggest laws of the land. They're deciding which country we should invade. And they may not even remember um, their own name right. because they have, some they, of them have dementia. They're remembering stuff from 30 years ago as opposed to what they had for breakfast today. Yeah. There was, there was one Senator, Thad Cochran, uh, Mississippi, who just stepped down. He got reelected a few years ago and then he had to resign. Um, and one reason he resigned was he could not remember how to find the committee room that he had been working in for the last 20 years. 
It's it's unbelievable. Yeah. That's I mean, obviously that's an excellent case on that one. The fact the fact he was able to keep it from uh any of the voters is kind of amazing. Cause I would imagine for the first at least five years of that nobody had any clue. You see what some of them do in campaign season though. They kind of get propped up in a weekend at Bernie's right. style campaign where you know they're not really saying all that much yet they've got the name recognition and the cool ad and so people just kind of fall in love with that yeah and then you get the people who i'm not going to campaign during this election season because i have work to do here right yes the the very important work of uh walking two blocks away from capitol hill to go into a call center and spend five hours a day on the phone begging for money (laughs) so uh last week i had rebecca bidlack on um, and I'm certain that you know Rebecca. Uh, I do. Yeah. And uh, she actually, she works for the uh, Co- Coalition to Reduce Spending. And one of the things that she was telling us about is a website that she has called uh, spendingtracker.org. And if there's ever been a better case for term limits than this website, I can't really think of one. Because um, I just went on there and I had... Because after the, she was talking about it on the show, and then afterwards I went and I checked out the website, and I just put in Charlie Crist because he's my uh, he's my congressman, and in the two years he has been in office, he has spent one point seven trillion dollars. Wow! And that's just in two years. He still has two more since he just got reelected. It'll um, get worse with time. It's right. only going to get worse. Exactly, and. If anybody out there is like, well, I don't think my uh, congressman or my senator is that bad, go to this website and just just go look. They really are that bad. They really are that bad. Um, but that, I mean, that was just kind of really eye-opening for me. Like, I know that Congress wastes money. I know that the government wastes money. I know all governments waste money. Um, but when you see it kind of broken down to each person, uh, it's kind of like, okay, we definitely need to get these guys out of here because – now they're just doing it for fun at this point. I can't even imagine why Charlie Chris thought $1.7 trillion in two years was a good idea. And those were during the Trump years, too, so it's really confusing. Yeah, and, and the people who are going to have to pay that debt off um, can't vote for Charlie Crist because they haven't reached legal voting age yet. Or been born yet. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's like this ridiculous um, game where they're pitting generations against each other in order to keep themselves in office. Um, it, it really is sad. And what you see is the longer they have been in office, the spending is just on an upward trajectory. So someone who's been there four years spends more than someone who's a freshman. Someone who's been there 20 spends more than that. And it just gets worse and worse with time. Um, so my thinking is just cut them off at the pass, get somebody new in there who has principle and knows what they're doing and doesn't intend to keep themselves in power for 30 years. I mean, because the spending is not really a defect of the system we have now. It is a feature of the status quo. It is a reward for campaign dollars that roll in and keep incumbents in power. And then they need a bureaucracy to administer all of it. It's like, do we really think that members of Congress are against giving the public affordable prescription drugs or letting us import drugs from Canada? I don't think they are. I don't think so. But, no, but the American pharmaceutical big pharma keeps them in office, writes massive checks out of the pack, and they're just beholden to that. So if you want people who are actually going to um, follow a moral compass rather than just kind of 
gluttonously grab for more power, term limits is one of the few ways that you can actually accomplish that. So in your opinion, should we go back to uh, the governor of each state appointing the senators, or do you think that we should continue to vote on it? Hmm. Well, I think it was the legislatures, actually, that got to do it, not not just the governor. Okay. Uh, the governor may have played a role, but it was mainly the legislatures that did. I go back and forth on that um, because I, I know a lot of state legislators, and I don't know if I want those guys picking my senator. But it, it, it's, um, it's a tough dilemma because on one hand, you don't want, oh, my goodness, I just had a blackout in here. I, I, I was going to say, it's like, well, it's like we set the- politicians are monitoring my activities. Yeah, it's like we set the uh, ambiance for- uh... It's a clapper. There we go. I'm good. <laughs> Do you have a clapper? <laughs> I got a clapper. I'm, you know, I'm 50 years uh, ahead of my time. Yeah, <laughs> or behind. <laughs> So, um, yeah, direct election of senators. On one hand, you do want the states to be have more of a role uh, in pushing back against a lot of these federal mandates. But what's going to happen if you give that power back to state legislators? Are they not just going to give it to the highest bidder? Um, you know, right now we have politicians who bribe voters with free stuff. Uh, if the, the states take control of that process, will they not just be bribing state legislators with free stuff? Will, will, will a rich guy not just come to you know, the Speaker of the House in Florida and say, I want to be our U.S. Senator, and in exchange, here's $10 million for your PAC, quid pro quo. Um, so it, it really goes both ways. But we definitely need to get more state um, sensibilities in there, push back against some of these mandates. That might be a way to do it. It can't get any worse than what we have now. Right. I, I mean – Right now, it's you still have people paying in order, you know, they promise the voters free stuff. They promise the voters whatever it is that they think that the voters want to hear um, with, you know, Rick Scott and Bill Nelson. Rick Scott, you know, I'm going to give you term limits, even though I don't think it'll pass through Congress. Um, which You I don't think, think it or he doesn't think it? I don't know if it would, I don't think it would pass through Congress right now. It wouldn't, but right. that's why we're not betting on Congress to do it. Right. If, when you ask Congress to do it, that's like asking a chicken to vote for Colonel Sanders. Uh, it's You're right, not going to happen. Right. But under Article 5 of the Constitution, you can actually go through the state legislatures to propose the amendment, and nobody in Washington can veto that. So what we're actually doing as an organization is we're going state by state, um, working with state speakers of the House, Senate presidents, to get this legislation introduced to call a term limits convention. Once you have 34 legislatures do that, the states can come together, they can write the amendment, and they can totally bypass Washington, D.C. And, and finalize it on their own. Because you remember, the incentives are totally different for a state legislator. If you're in Congress, you never want to vote for term limits because you want to keep your job. It's all about self-preservation. Right. If you're a state legislator, your dream is to serve in Congress. You would love to be there, but you can't get in because the spot is blocked by this prehistoric incumbent who has been there since Lyndon Johnson was president. And so you would love nothing more than to kick this person out of office and get an open seat that you can run for. So we're getting a very positive reaction. We've already passed it in Florida, Alabama, uh, and Missouri. There have been nine other states that have called for an amendment convention that would include term limits. So we're well on our way. We've proven the concept. We just got to scale it over the next few years and take it into more states. All right. Um, 
Yeah, like 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 I said, when uh when the first time we met was a couple of weeks like in person the first time we met was um a couple of weeks ago in Orlando when Caleb was in town. Caleb from uh Mid Liberty. Um, cool guy. Very yeah, good guy. Great guy. Great guy. Um but yeah, so that was that was the first time uh you and I had actually met in person. Uh, and I told you then, like I see both sides of the argument. Because like I do, like I do see the the voters have the right to pick who they want leading them, essentially. But I also see once you're in office, name recognition goes a long way. There was the uh, Eddie Murphy movie back in the '90s. I think it was called The Distinguished Gentleman. Oh, I would. I was hoping you'd say Coming to America. No. What moment on the Prince? <laughs> he ran his entire campaign on name recognition, even though he wasn't the candidate that had been in office. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, I think his I think his name was uh, Thomas Jefferson Jackson, and uh, so yeah, 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 yeah. And then it was something like that, and he ran on name recognition because the guy that just left office was Thomas Jackson or Jeff Jackson or something like that, and he's like, Jeff Jackson, the name you know, and <laughs> it wasn't the same guy; it was just the same name. Um, well, yeah, George. I don't know if you're familiar with George Will or not, um, yeah. but George Will has written a book on term limits. Um, called Restoration. It's from the early 90s. It's very good. But one of the quotes from him is, he's talking about American history. He says, America has never flirted for even a moment with pure majoritarianism. And what he's saying is, um, since our inception, we've not just said there's this sacred right of people to just have absolute voting privileges. I mean, for example, you couldn't, you couldn't elect me president. I'm not eligible. I'm not 35 years old. Uh, you couldn't elect Vladimir Putin as your president. Not you couldn't boy. elect a, um, you know, a 13-year-old to serve as a congressman from Wyoming. I mean, we have qualifications for office that are already in our Constitution that say who can and cannot run. And this would just be another one. It would be if you've already served for six or eight years, you can't run for Congress again. We've had term limits on the president since 1951. It's very uncontroversial. Most people think that it's worked out very well. Um, I know I wouldn't want George W. Bush, Donald Trump, or Barack Obama to be president for life. I kind of like the idea that we've got turnover, and um, I would love to see that in Congress. I think it would be even better in Congress because you see that so much of the power is concentrated with leadership, and leadership rules with an iron fist. The newer members can't really make much of a difference. So I think you need to kind of break up that leadership cartel, that monopoly that they have, and um, disperse some of the power to the other, you know, 530 members who are there. I, um, I heard a story not too long ago about Thomas Massey during one of his first votes and, uh, he voted against the Republican party. He, I, I think it was a, the Republicans were voting yes. And he voted no. Um, and Paul Ryan and I don't remember who the other guy is. Some other McCarthy, maybe. Could have been McCarthy, but they they went over to him and they were giving him, telling him he needed to vote for the party. And Justin Amash and uh, Joe Walsh were watching this uh, interaction. And Joe Walsh was saying, hey, let's go over and save him. And Justin said, no, I want to see how he handles this. <laughs> and you, know, you vote for the party. You vote with the party. And uh, Massey's going I vote how the people who elected me want me to vote because that's why they sent me here. And I thought that was a great answer. Like that's yes. You don't just agree with the party. You vote the way that yeah. the people 
based on what you ran on. Like if you say, I'm not going to vote for any new health care bills. Uh, I'm not going to vote to expand Obamacare. I'm not going to vote, you know, whatever. If you vote on, run on that and then the Republicans try to do something, yeah, you vote against it because that's what you've been promising. Um, and and you, you suffer consequences. Consequences are can be pretty huge right. if you vote, vote against the party. They, they could remove you from a committee. Uh, they could go out and recruit somebody to run against you. A lot of people don't know that um, the, the committee chairmanships in Congress are assigned based on extortion money. Whoever can raise the most money, they actually have a menu in the back rooms of Congress that they post, a price list that says, you get this committee chairmanship if you can raise this amount of money, or you need this amount of money for the party in order to keep your spot on a very key committee. And the guys who refuse to play ball, the guys who refuse to basically become political prostitutes and telemarketers all day long, they get kicked out of those committees um, very, very quickly. So it's... A lot of people who vote don't really see all this this backroom sausage making and how the power is really allocated in Washington, D.C. I, I don't know exactly what happened to Massey, but I'm guessing he might have lost a committee spot based on going against the party, bucking the party like that. Right. Either that or he was so new, nothing happened because he probably wasn't in a commit like a committee chair at yeah. the time. And right. then after that. He just became more and more. That, massy. That, that's another that's another problem that we have, um, which is. Suppose you you built a business. Um, you love your business, but you also love your country, and you would like to serve in Congress. But you don't want to leave your your vocation. You don't want to leave your the thing that you've built for thirty years just to have a, a small, slim chance of influencing something in Congress. Because that's sometimes how long it takes to climb up the ladder: fifteen years for a committee chairmanship, sometimes thirty years to be in leadership. So, what do all those people? or brilliant people wind up doing. They don't run at all. They just stay where they are. The folks who wind up running for Congress in most cases, not not Massey, but the folks who wind up running are people who can see themselves in a political office for decades. And I hate to tell you, those are not the types of people who are going to favor limits on government. Those are not the types of people that you want running your country um, because they're just so um, single-minded. And they don't really see that the other side of the story, they don't really see that um, there's a private sector out there and government can severely harm it with certain regulations and other policies. It's, it's weird that many of the people in Congress wouldn't know about the private sector. Um, <laughs> wait, there's a private sector. Not everybody gets paid publicly with taxpayer funds. That's weird. Not every, not everybody has a secret sexual harassment slush fund that they get to keep from their uh, employers. Imagine that. Imagine that if your company, um, if you were an employee and you settled sexual harassment lawsuits with company money, company funds, and your boss was not allowed to know about it, was not allowed to know how much was spent on your behalf or was not allowed to know that you were the employee spending his money to cover up your crimes. It, as outrageous as that sounds to you and me, that is exactly what has happened. <laughs> I was going to say that's exactly what's going on in, in Congress. In, in Congress, yeah, with um, tens of millions of dollars to cover up sexual harassment. I mean, ever since I uh, ever since I brought Spike Cohen onto the muddy onto Muddy Waters Media, I feel as though I need a sexual harassment slush fund because I mean, he's just <laughs> constant telling me how good looking I am. Is, uh, does he get a little too handsy sometimes? Sometimes, you, you know, keep, he, that, keep that in check. <laughs> 
Yeah, get getting a little on the handsy side from Spike Cohen. Um, <laughs> well, Nick, thank you so much for coming on. Um, do you have anything that you want to pitch? You want to tell the people about uh, sure. websites, signups, bills, whatever? I would love to. We are looking to build an army of volunteers and activists who would like to see term limits on Congress. Like I said, there are still lots of states that have yet to pass this. And so we need help in places like Georgia, Tennessee, Maine, Arizona, all over the country, really. So I would tell your listeners, your viewers, go to termlimits.com. Check us out there. And we also have a podcast we recently launched called No Uncertain Terms. We release an episode every Monday, and you can check that out on iTunes or, or Stitcher. Uh, we've actually already been on the iTunes charts a couple of times, and we're pretty new. So we're really excited about that. There's a lot going on in the term limits movement right now, and there are a lot of great opportunities to get involved. Excellent. I'll put both of those links down in the show notes cool. for this episode. Um, again, thank you so much for coming on. I do appreciate it. Um, I'm going to do the closeout if you can want to hang out for just one minute. And uh, Cool. Excellent. Love it. All right, everybody. Uh, after you go to those links and uh, sign up and um, make sure that you subscribe to No Uncertain Terms um, on iTunes or Stitcher. Stitcher. Yeah, Stitcher. Uh, make sure you sign. <laughs> I mean, yeah, sure. Stitcher. Uh, there's, if, it's on, if it's on iTunes, it's on a bunch of other ones already as I learned. Um, yeah, make sure you go and you subscribe to those, uh, go to termlimits.com and sign up for any mail from there. And, uh, after you do that, make sure that you go to the old Twitter and go to muddied underscore waters and hit that little follow button or whatever it is on Twitter now. And then on uh, Facebook, go to facebook.com slash muddied waters of freedom on Instagram. You can follow us at muddied waters of freedom and you can find this and every episode at muddied waters of freedom.com. All new episodes next week. Be sure to tune in and uh, get back to writing because that is the easiest way that we can make a difference. I, I am, I am swinging from a seven-story window, throwing parties in a ten-by-seven cell. It's a stunning the legs I'll go to convince the whole damn world I don't need anybody's help. Yeah, I am.
myself It's a standard The lengths I'll go To convince the whole damn world I don't need anybody's help